from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a filmmaker of both still and moving pictures. He's the publisher of both Cynical and Subspace magazine, as well as the director and producer of numerous short films. He's joining me today to talk about his new feature-length film, The Goetia Diaries, as well as his upcoming films. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Danny Stygian. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me. I really enjoyed the Goetia Diaries. It had elements of horror, the occult, mystery, and a great performance by the actors, especially the lead actor, Jay Short. Uh, thank you very much. So since this movie is occult heavy, I think it's pretty obvious that you're an occult practitioner. Can you tell us a little bit about your occult practice? It kind of started, I think, in my 20s. I had uh, bought some books written by Alistair Crowley, Chaos Magic. And I had a hard time really understanding Crowley. He's pretty dense. So I didn't explore it too much at that time. But then in my mid-30s, I met Brittany, who is now my wife, and she had an interest in tarot. So she did a tarot card reading, and it just kind of reminded me about Crowley because he had a, a tarot deck called the Thoth deck. So... I guess through the exposure, through the tarot reading, it got my interest peaked again to explore the occult. So I started researching Crowley again and the Thoth deck, and I just kind of went down the rabbit hole. Eventually, I found the Goetia, and it really captured my interest. I started uh, doing a lot of research, and then I started doing some rituals, and uh, I started documenting some of the rituals I did. And after several ritual sessions, that's what gave me the idea to try and do a movie about it. So there's definitely aspects in the movie that come from my personal experiences. But I'm definitely not an expert in the occult. I'm still learning and exploring. Yeah, when you said chaos magic, for some reason I always attributed that to Austin Osmond Spare, I think. Yeah. Was he a contemporary of Crowley's? Yes. Chaos magic definitely stems from him. And then some other writers definitely elaborated on what he started. Pete Carroll? I think is his name, Pete Carroll, and some other writers that I can't think of at the second. Yeah, the Thoth deck, the background behind that's amazing. Do you remember the name of the woman he worked with to get the portraits for each one of those cards? Um, 
I'd have to look it yeah, up. Yeah, I'd have but, to look uh, it up. Yeah, a lot of preparation, planning, and I think ritual preparation on his part went into the uh, design of those cards. Yeah, that would probably make a, a great movie, I think. It's just that relationship he had with that woman, the artist. I believe it took several years for them to finish that deck. That was one of the last things he did before he died. So do you practice the left-hand path approach? Uh, I guess you might want to call it chaos magic, which to me kind of is similar to Bruce Lee's philosophy to martial arts, which is you take a little bit of uh, different magical systems and keep what works for you. So I, I wouldn't call what I explore left-hand path. I guess there really isn't a title. I'm definitely trying to explore many things. Okay. So chaos is kind of the equivalent of MMA. It's just like, yeah, yeah. gotcha. All right. Yeah, I don't think I've ever had chaos magic defined for me before. So can you tell me about a few different disciplines you kind of cherry pick in for your uh, your brand of chaos magic? Uh, definitely the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, some of the rituals that they explored. There's a great book called Modern Magic by Donald Michael Craig, which covers a lot of these different types of magic, magicians and rituals. That's a really good, I think, starting point for anyone who's interested. But that book covers rituals such as the Lesser Banishing Ritual of the Pentagram and explores the Goetia and Evocation. And Damien Eccles, I got a lot out of reading his books. He explores similar rituals like Lesser Banishing Ritual of the Pentagram, the Middle Pillar, and different things. So I guess I would say uh, check out that book, Modern Magic. Okay. Well, the book that the movie is based upon, it's simply called the Goetia, right? The the actual tome? It's called, uh, it's part of the La Megaton, which is like five books. Um, okay. And yes, that book focuses on the 72 demons and the myth of King Solomon. Okay. So whenever I think Solomon, I think, you know, Solomon's temple, I think the Bible, I think Freemasonry, you know, uh, Hiram Abiff, whatever the right. <laughs> the third degree ritual is. How does that tie in exactly? Can you shed some light on that? Well, as far as it relates to the Galatia, I believe one of the first books is the Testament of Solomon. He started to work with spirits to help heal people. And he also worked with them to help build the Temple of Solomon. And then he had to basically put them all in a brass vessel and uh, cast it out into the sea. And it was discovered later, and all these spirits were unleashed onto the world. The legend is that one of his main adversaries was a spirit called Asmodeus, which helps induce lust into the person that he's battling, I guess. And Solomon definitely has a reputation of falling because of lust and being seduced. And cleaving infants in two, I think, or threatening to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So where did you get the inspiration for making a horror movie based on the Goetia? Like, I think you've had a couple of short films prior to this. So this is your first uh, full-length feature, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, well, in my teens, I had always wanted to direct movies. And I kind of got sidetracked into photography and some videography, making like, you know, music videos and things like that. And then a magazine. So when I reached my mid-30s, I just reminded myself that was one of my goals, which is to make films. So I started making short films. The first one was called Solitaire. And the second one was called Curse of Witches. And after that one, I felt like it was time to make this happen because I was 40 at that point. And as far as why I chose found footage, 
I guess the two reasons would be found footage films offer a more personal experience to the viewer. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely something that goes in the favor of an independent filmmaker as far as budget. And, you know, things don't have to look so polished. You can get away with a lot of things like not perfect sound or not perfect video. So that's part of the reason why we chose found footage. But I also love found footage horror films. I almost feel that a good one can be more scary or more affecting than a polished studio film because you know it's hard to really get drawn into some of them they're just so i don't know artificial yeah with found footage yeah i never really thought of that as far as a financial standpoint you know it's not supposed to look polished it's not supposed to look like something that miramax produced you know yeah so where did you get the inspiration specifically for making the movie about the goetia like the storyline like this guy is going to try and invoke not one demon, but 72. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had a lot of characters in my head over the years for different script ideas that I never really fleshed out. So when I started writing the script, I figured I was going to throw everything in. Like all these character names I had or characters I had for different stories, I was going to try and put them into one script just in case this is the only one I ever get to make. So a lot of the names come from different stories I've been working on. In doing some of those rituals, I felt like this might make a good story. And I asked myself, what would be a good way to present a found footage film? And it would be to present it from the viewpoint of a vlogger. That'd be easy to shoot. And uh, I, wouldn't ha I wouldn't need too many locations or actors. And the main character is kind of exploring things kind of the way that I did. Just like I'm trying to find out why I'm interested in this, which is one of the lines in the script. So his journey is a little bit of my journey, just, you know, a little bit more extreme. <laughs> um and another reason is I don't think there really is a movie like this that I've seen um, as far as someone genuinely trying to explore the cult. There's a couple other movies about vloggers, definitely, that explore different things, but they don't really uh, try to delve into this type of material. So the occult experts that Richard seeks out the counsel of in the film, are they occult? I don't know if expert would be the right word in real life. Yes, definitely. Paul Frederick, he plays Trevor Maine. He is an author. Um, he runs a podcast called Demonosophy, which focuses on left-hand path and I guess the darker aspects of magic. He's definitely a practitioner and an expert. Uh, he's based in Houston. And I'm actually really grateful he was a part of this project and uh, was very supportive. Lawyer Douglas is in the film. He used to run an occult oddities shop called The Wild Collection, which mm -hmm. someone in Porsche... Now, uh, but I'm sorry, which one was he? He played Soren Parlow in the film. His scene at his house, you see all the taxidermy. Oh, yeah. okay, yeah. Someone unfortunately burned down his shop. Really? Yeah, so he's in the process, I think, of trying to rebuild at a new location. And I think his shop is still online. He has a really distinctive personality. And he's also been very supportive of the things that I've worked on. Very grateful that he was a part of this project. And Cyrus, he plays David Resnick in the film. He is uh, also a practitioner. I think he's explored chaos magic mainly in his past. I don't know if he still explores magic currently, but everyone has a little bit of uh, experience, except for the lead actor. This was kind of new to Jay. So the rituals that you were talking about previously that kind of led to the inspiration for the movie. Is that something you do solitarily or are you doing it with other people or? As far as how a ritual works is uh, you do it solitary. You do it alone. So you have basically a, a scrying mirror 
or a dark mirror, flanked by two candles. You have a magic circle. You need to pick a certain spirit out of the catalog that you want to interact with and, you know, ask for things. And you have to make sure you have the right incense, the right candles, you know, the right type of atmosphere before you do this ritual. There's a certain incantations you're supposed to say out and certain conjuration words. You go through this whole process and you wear a robe and you have certain ritual items that you wear as far as the Ring of Solomon, Pentacle of Solomon around your neck, and certain things you're supposed to have, the sigils and parchment paper. There's a lot to it. But the purpose is to, once you feel that the spirit is there, you ask for the things that you want. This could be knowledge. It could be wealth. It could be to destroy your enemies. It depends really which spirit you're interacting with. So there's two frames of mind on what's really happening, which is people think the things that you're seeing are external entities. They're real. Mm -hmm. And then another group thinks that what you see in the mirror or outside the circle is happening inside your psyche. So it's a different part of your brain. You can definitely... Like the unconscious? Is yeah. Maybe, like you're tapping okay. into, I guess, your higher consciousness. I've seen things in the mirror. For me, it's a great way to meditate, I guess, on what you really want, what you're really after. I can't honestly say, like, you know, these spirits are showing up outside the circle. Some people, like experts like Stephen Skinner, definitely say that they're external and he has seen them outside. And other people have said the same. And then you have another camp that thinks it's all in your head. But it helps me definitely focus and meditate. And a lot of rituals I've done, not just the Goetia related, but different types of magic, like sigil magic. I feel like it definitely helps focus. So it could just be a law of an attraction thing where like what I'm trying to will kind of manifest because I'm really focusing on it. But things have definitely happened that I've gone after doing these rituals. You know, I think it helped me get my uh, or meet my wife. It helped us get a house. It helped me make a movie. It's helped me with the magazine and different things. I haven't done any elaborate rituals in a while, but I definitely think it's benefited me to explore it. Mm -hmm. At the same time, also, I don't want to sound like a crazy person where I say, like, I'm working with yeah, demons. But, <laughs> yeah, hey, you know, <laughs> there's plenty of religions that people, you know, oh, God told me to tell you. Yeah. But that's perfectly okay, but... <laughs> Yeah. So, well, you mentioned sigil magic, which I've looked into before, and there is a guy on YouTube that talks about sigils a lot, and he's more along the line of you're tapping into your subconscious. Yeah. He's big on Jung, and that sigils or symbols are the way you communicate with the unconscious mind. So that ritual that Richard Deacon does, the sex ritual? Yes. I read the book uh, Sex Magicians by Michael William West and the section on Austin Osmond Spare. Honestly, that makes total sense to me, the way a sexual orgasm, because like when you think about when you're you know, having an orgasm, I mean, everything is just shut down. Conscious thought is just yeah. out there. And the theory that your unconscious mind is just kind of laid bare and exposed so it can like take in this sigil that's been constructed to stand for you know whatever your end goal is to me it's as crazy as you know some people would think the act is i think it's pretty rational actually i i don't know why it works i could just say that i believe it works 
from experience, you know, after performing some of those sigil magic rituals, things have happened afterwards. Mm -hmm. As far as, you know, desires that I had written on parchment paper and then performed the ritual. So, yeah, I don't know why it works, but I think it works. Well, speaking of occult accoutrement, there's a scene at a store called Thorn and Moon in the movie that looks like an actual genuine place, is it? Yes, it's a shop in Houston okay. run by a woman named Jessica Anderson, and she let us film at the shop. But yeah, it's, I think, one of the few that's in Houston besides the Magic Cauldron. But yeah, she's very nice, and uh, she has a lot of knowledge. And I don't, are you in Houston? Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, I definitely recommend you go check it Is out. Is that like in the Heights or something? Yes, or? it's in the Heights. Okay. Um, and there's another great one called the Witchery, which is in Galveston. So those are the only three that I know in like our area. Is it relatively new? Because honestly, that's the first I've ever heard of it. I th but you know that doesn't necessarily mean anything. I've been out of the loop for a while. <laughs> it started as a market. Uh, I think she used to do it at Avant Garden. And the shop has been around for, I think, less than a year. The shop is pretty new. And she has books, incense, candles, and artwork, and basically what you see in the shop, yeah, <laughs> in the okay. movie. Does she cater to a particular brand of practice, or is it just kind of a... I think it's definitely an eclectic. There's definitely darker stuff in there, if that's what you're into, mm -hmm. and tarot, and things like that. But it's not limited to any one thing. Well, in the movie, Richard Deacon goes to the shop to get a tarot reading, and I believe the uh, actress that gives the tarot reading is your wife, correct? Yes, that's my wife, okay. Brittany. And uh, she knows that scene in two takes. <laughs> you had mentioned that when you first met her, she did a tarot reading for you? Yes. Is that correct? After we had known each other for a while, she had just brought it up. She kind of did it for fun. But it definitely piqued my interest to explore it more. And it, like I said, I just went down the rabbit hole. Just started buying every book that I could get and going through it. So her practice was more of just like kind of a casual thing? Yeah, it's, it's more personal okay. and casual. Yeah, she's not an expert. She definitely knows okay. more than me. Well, are there different disciplines? Like, you know, we mentioned right and left-hand path. Are there different ways or schools of thought to read tarot cards? Or is it kind of very formulaic? This is the way you do it. There's definitely different ways to do it. I'm not an expert, definitely not. But the way that I try to do it is uh, there's a cult expert and author named Lon Milo Duquette. Uh, oh, yeah, the <clears throat> guy from the uh, Ordo Templi. Yes. Ordo Templi Orientis. Yeah. I feel like he's one of the top experts. He's written a lot of books on Crowley and Low Magic and the Gracia and the Kabbalah. And he wrote a book about the Thoth deck, which is the one that kind of reached out to me the most, uh, even more than like the Rider Waite deck. And he has his own way of laying out the cards, which makes sense to me, which is you ask yourself a question. Or you focus on a question before you do the reading. You lay up three cards and you kind of examine the cards and meditate on them. And then which of the three cards you want to explore further, you would lay down two more underneath it. And you'd keep the process going. Then you would lay down one more card. And then that last card, I try to focus on for the week. Just kind of keep in uh, the back of my mind throughout the week. And it's definitely helped me. Even if it just gives you a reason to look at things at a different angle. And maybe just get outside your head a little bit and be objective. Mm -hmm. It helps. One of my last readings told me to watch out for backstabbers <laughs> in the <laughs> workplace. And I definitely felt that that week. So I was like on guard. But I usually have the same question when I do readings, but I don't want to reveal that question. 
the reasonings are definitely supposed to be private. So, yeah. Yeah. Doesn't that evolve from the, whenever you make a wish, like when you're blowing out the candles and they say, don't tell anybody or won't come true. Isn't that based on a magical principle? Like you're not supposed to reveal. Yeah. And the tarot, like if you had a deck of playing cards, you'd be talking suits, I guess. Right. But in the tarot, that's like the major and minor arcana. Right. And so anyway, those, for lack of a better word, suits, like tarot's version of a suit, are those always the same across all decks? Or do decks have entirely different, you know, like there's not a fool in this particular deck? I believe so. And I'm really hesitant to pick up decks that don't have the correct amount of cards that are short. So I feel like they're incomplete. But yeah, for the most part, they're supposed to have the same type of cards, just like a playing card deck. And you recommend Duquette's book on the Thoth deck? Because I actually tried to read the book of Thoth by Crowley uh, one time, yeah. and my my brain started like overheating. I had to. <laughs> I also bought that book first, and I just I couldn't make sense out of it. But his book is much more easier to understand, and I look at it often. I have to check that out. So tell me about your first short film, I believe, that you mentioned already, Solitaire. I made that film, I want to say, when I was 36 or 37, after I had gotten divorced. After the divorce, you know, like most people, you have a lot of motivation to try and get things done. And I was like, all right, now it's time. I need to get back into filmmaking. And I always loved black and white photography and uh, black and white films. So I know I wanted it to be shot in black and white. And some of the themes came from a friend or a former friend of mine, as far as someone being obsessed with playing cards. That was one of his obsessions. And just kind of having suicidal thoughts and having it tied in mainly with the Suicide King card from the playing card deck. But yeah, so it's basically the last night of this man who's going through things, you know, personal issues. And it leads to his suicide. But before then, he has a night with a prostitute. But he's also remembering the breakup of his girlfriend. And yeah, we shot it in one night. We did do rehearsals before we did the shoot at a friend's apartment. We just kind of blocked the scenes and tried to break it down. Uh, so when we actually shot it, it was pretty smooth. Um, it was hard for me to watch. When you're close to a project, you just don't want to see it for a while. <laughs> uh, but I watched it recently, and I'm still proud of it. I feel like it was a good first attempt. Are you talking about like... Since you're so immersed in every aspect of it, you kind of pick it apart. Yeah, you just or you talking. You see things that you would want to do differently, or you see the mm-hmm. mistakes you made. I know there's a director, David Sandberg, who makes like big Hollywood movies now, like Shazam. But he started mm-hmm. off making YouTube films, short five minute films. But anyways, even in his big budget movies, he'll see a mistake, like they forgot to take tape off the wall, or you know, you'll see the boomstick. But most people don't catch that stuff at all. But the filmmaker sees all that. It drives him nuts. And that's kind of what happens. Yeah, it's kind of like when I'm producing my podcast, I'll be like really irritated. My fiance will come in and like, what's wrong? You're like, listen to this. I can't get this to go away. And she'll oh, be like, yeah. What are you talking about? It's like, you don't hear that squeal, like that resonant frequency. She's <laughs> like, no, sweetheart, you're I think you might be crazy. <laughs> I, I can definitely relate to audio stuff driving me nuts. Do you watch Alter at all, the YouTube channel? Uh, yes, I've seen some short films on that channel. They make really good short films. Yeah. I think uh, the actress that was in one of the Avenger movies, she's, the I think, the daughter of Thanos. But that actress makes really good short horror films. I think horror 
films is her. Really? Her, oh, so she herself does. Yeah. And, oh. Okay. And uh, she's blue in the Avenger movies, Avengers Endgame, but like in real life, I think she's like a redhead or something like that. Okay. So it's a drastic difference. <laughs> Yeah, I just got turned on to it like a week or so ago, and good God, I watched this one that was just, it wasn't so much horror as it was, I mean, it was kind of dystopian, I guess, dystopian horror. Yeah. It was fucking heartbreaking, <laughs> yeah, but it was so good, though. There, there's so much good um, stuff on YouTube and uh, Vimeo. Like yeah. Mm-hmm. And did you end up getting the Goetia Diaries on Tubi? Was that what you were trying to get it on? Uh, right. So this is all a learning process for me, but... I'm using a distribution service called Film Hub. And what they do is once you deliver your film to them, they are the ones that try to sell it to these channels, such as Amazon and Tubi and many others. Shutter. Shutter. Put it on Shutter. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of have to have a middleman these days to get anywhere. But so how it works is it's delivered, then they could either decline it or accept it. They accept it. You won't know when it goes up. They don't tell the distribution service, so they won't update you either. So like every day, you just got to check, is it on there yet? Is it on there? And unfortunately, one channel has declined the movie, which I've learned that some other independent horror filmmakers have been having problems with. Mm-hmm. I don't want to name them, <laughs> but they're only really accepting polished Hollywood stuff these days that you know millions of dollars were spent on. So they're not going to take a low-budget found footage horror film anymore, even though they got a lot of garbage on their platform. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, large budget and expensive equipment does not a good movie make. Yeah, so. that's very true. There's <laughs> a lot of terrible movies still coming up. Well, what about your short film, Curse of the Witches? I did watch that one, and that was your wife in that, correct? Yes. Okay. Um, I was kind of inspired by David Sandberg. He shot a lot of short horror films with his wife, and one of them got to notice that James Wan, who made the Saw movies and The Conjuring, and they had him direct a feature-length film based off his short film, Lights Out. Uh, so that was, I guess, the impetus to make it. As far as the title, it was, I think I grabbed it off uh, social media. It's where, like, you pick your birthday. Your birthday lines up with a bunch of different titles. The month and then the day lines up with another title and then the year. So it was just randomly. And my birthday came out to Curse of Witches. Really? So that's how we chose the film. <laughs> And I was trying to just do something that was an hour and a half. We were really rushed at night. We didn't have a whole lot of time to shoot. And we drove to Austin to shoot it at Brittany's grandmother's house. Oh, okay. And I wondered if that was your house or not, but that was in Austin. Yeah, yeah, it was in Austin. Her grandmother was nice enough to let us shoot there. And I was using older equipment. I've upgraded my equipment since then. So there's some things I'm not happy with it, but yeah, we tried our best. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you got to make, you know, a roll of short films to learn your mistakes, I guess, through them. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, I read on your Instagram that you were going to be starting pre-production on a new feature-length film soon. Yes. Can you tell us, is that hush-hush? Like, No, uh, I uh, published a magazine, and my background comes from fetish photography. And the magazine that I published is called Cynical, and it has a sister magazine called Subspace. So my background is from with fetish photography and alternative photography. And that's where most of, I guess, my followers or readers come from. And they supported the Goetia Diaries. We ran a Kickstarter that a lot of them backed and a lot of them have been kind of tracking it. I think more just out of support. Some I'm sure are genuinely interested, but that type of movie really doesn't go with the audience that I've built up the past 13 years, which is like more pinup and burlesque and fetish. 
So I wanted to make a film that documents some of my experiences in the last 20 years and the fetish scene and photography and how I met my wife and put that in a film. And I feel like that would have a lot more support and backing with the cynical audience than a demon horror film, you know, even though I still plan to make more horror films. But I feel like that's a personal story that I could tell that others might not be able to. And I want to make stuff that others wouldn't be able to as much. I think anyone could probably make a found footage horror film. <laughs> but I don't know how many people really know a lot about the fetish scene that I've learned, you know, from the past 20 years. And that project's in the script stage. I hope to start shooting it hopefully by uh, next year and to get it out by next year. And uh, I'm also starting a documentary about the occult next month, starting with Paul. He's going to be the first interview. But I plan to interview different occultists covering a lot of different aspects of magic and paths. And I want it to be a feature-length documentary, not just like a short 10-minute film. So that project might take a year or so to complete. Okay. And so am I to understand that the one about cynical and the fetish photography scene, is that a documentary as well? No, that'll be a feature-length film narrative. My plan is to present it in a cinematic style, not found footage. But yeah, that'll be just a regular movie, hopefully around 70 to 90 minutes. Okay. So, I mean, it'll be fictional. Will it be like loosely based on you and your experiences, but through the lens of fiction? Yes. Okay, gotcha. And then the one you just spoke of with regard to Paul Frederick is a documentary, and it's a documentary on him? It's a documentary about the occult in general, and I guess different types of magic. And my plan is hopefully to film some people doing real rituals and to include that. Okay. There's a great documentary from the 80s called The Occult Experience. And you can find it online. I've seen it. Okay, yeah. So that's kind of the model for what we want to do. But one of the things I wanted to try that I feel like a lot of documentaries do is just, I feel like I could bring some of my uh, knowledge from photography and uh, colored lighting and those type of things I could try to bring to a documentary instead of just like flat lighting someone just in their living room doing an interview or an office type setting. Like I want to try and bring a little bit more creativity to how we present it. Yeah, I hope that doesn't come off as pretentious, but... <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Um, I've just seen a lot of bad documentaries that oh, are really yeah. boring visually, and you just, you know, you start to yeah. fall asleep watching them. So speaking of the feature-length film you have coming up with regard to Cynical Magazine, can you tell me a little bit about that and its background and exactly what it's all about? I mean, obviously, it's fetish photography, but... In 2002, I started doing photography and videography uh, focused on the fetish scene, fetish models, epitome models. And my work started to get published after a few years. And I had the idea to start a magazine in the mid-2000s. But most of my friends said it was going to cost too much, it's going to be too much work. And they just kind of, you know, shadowed my idea. So I just let it go for a while. But when I turned 30, it came back to me that, like, hey, I really wanted to do this. And at the time, there was print-on-demand companies that were coming up, like such as MacLeod, um, where it was much more easier to get a magazine printed. So if someone had to order it, they would print it and ship it, and you would just get a cut. And the, before the model was that you would have to spend a lot of money to print in bulk. And then you would have to try to get it in shops, which, like, you'd have to pay enormous fees. Even in Barzanola, you'd have to pay a lot of set-up fees. It's just a real difficult process. So it just made it much easier. You create the magazine, you design it, you upload it, 
to MadCloud and you make a sales page. And so that's what I did. I researched it for several months first, design and publishing for at least yeah, six months. And then I launched it in 2010 in spring or 2011, I think. I started doing all the research and design work in 2010. And then I just slowly built it up from there. One of the key things was to make sure I built up an email list so I could start building up subscribers that way, like digital, I guess, to get the digital copies too. And once we got Dita on the cover, Dita Vontees, we started to get a lot more submissions from models. I felt like people respected us more once she was on the cover. And there wasn't as much competition. I feel like now, like every week, there's a new pinup magazine popping up with like a really bad title. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And just, you know, bad design work and they're just throwing anyone on them. So we get a lot less submissions these days because there's just so many. But yeah, so that's how it started. And then we started doing fetish balls after a few years. And we were doing them almost yearly up until when the pandemic started, which that really sucks. Because it would have been the 10th anniversary and then the, you know, COVID hit and everything and everything just kind of stopped. And you're you're talking about something that you put on yourself? Uh, yes, with a small team. Just okay. friends and investors. And, you know, we started off at a strip club called Cover Girls. And those events, you know, they would cost us a few thousand dollars. We'd have performers and people can come dressed up. We would have DJs and things like that. And then we had some pretty big ones at Hilton Ballroom and Rockefellers. Oh, you know, we okay. had really large crowds and lots of vendors and multiple rooms. And then I think the biggest one we had, we had an after party where people could go to the different hotel rooms and there were scenes in those rooms. And people, you know, the, started getting complaints from <laughs> the hotel staff. So we had to shut things down. Oh, like, God. Uh, yeah, those parties were pretty crazy. We would like to get back to doing a ball eventually, but it's just kind of been put on hold the last few years. But people, they ask us all the time, like, when are you going to do another one? So I know there's still an audience. Well, it's interesting to hear you say that there is publish on demand, just like there is for books, because, you know, a lot of the most of the people actually that I interview are like indie writers. And so that makes their ability to have physical copies of their books yeah. makes it really easy. So I think it's a that's great thing. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So that's great for you. But how complicated is it when you get into the realm of the models because they're writing you actually have to get other people involved how does that work exactly oh as far as like receiving submissions or like doing shoots well is, well, is that what happens people like just find cynical magazine and uh, submit yeah we have a pretty strong social media presence so yeah most of the time and we'll ask for submissions we're always looking for submissions, but people will submit a set. We always ask that it's unpublished, that it's not in other magazines or not blasted all over social media already, just like for them to wait. But a lot of times I see the same images in other magazines, but you know, it's whatever. <laughs> I can't control that. I don't have the energy to try and do that. And good for them, you know, let other people see their work as much as possible. But yeah, I was definitely more active shooting models several years ago. I shoot a lot of the content myself. But I've had to slow down with that just because of other projects and uh, just kind of got burnt out. I had been doing photography for about 20 years. Sometimes, you know, people will write you wanting to shoot and then they won't, you know, come through and you kind of waste your time. I think I've had one person ask me to shoot with her four times. Oh. And the last time I just didn't respond. Like, you know, it's not going to happen. <laughs> um, but yeah, so people will submit to our email address. And so are they submitting pictures that have already been shot and produced and you just... Yeah, they produce it on their own and they submit it. And 
very rarely I'll ask someone if they'll, you know, actually, it's been years since I've asked someone to just shoot a set specifically. Sometimes if I'm uh, running up on a deadline and I know an issue needs to come out, I'll ask some photographer friends or people that have been real supportive if they have a set that hasn't been shown yet because they always want their work to be seen too. So my Canadian fetish photography, he's a really great photographer that's always shooting. So he always has content and he's always happy to send a set to us. His work's been on recover several times. So. All right. Well, so can you tell me a little bit about Dita Von Tees? Was that something she just submitted or did oh, you no. uh, shoot with her? Or? When I first became interested in the fetish scene, I had uh, discovered a documentary called Fetishes on HBO. I think I was like 17. And I explored a dungeon in New York called Pandora's Box. And that just kind of opened my eyes to this whole other world. Like, I didn't really know much about So I started looking into things like Betty Page. Uh, and then I came across Dita Bontes and Marquise Magazine, which she was on the cover a lot. And I joined her fan club and things like that. So when I moved to Texas in 98 and kind of got established here, Around 2002, 2003 is when I started to do fetish events. And our second event was called Desire. And it was at a mansion, this huge mansion off of Beverly Hills Drive in Houston. And we booked her. It took a lot of work to pull that show off because we had a lot of resistance. Because back then, like, no one wanted competition, (laughs) believe it or not. There's, like, a lot of politics in Houston when it comes to doing fetish balls. But we were able to book her before she really got huge. She had just gotten on the cover of Playboy. She was dating Marilyn Manson, so she was starting to get really well-known. And we were the first people to bring her to Houston. And so it was a big deal for us. And the show was huge. There was a long line like to the street. At that time, I really wished I was more established as a photographer because I would have loved to shoot her then. But it took you know years for me to really gain experience. But anyways... She comes through Houston every few years or a couple of years mm-hmm. uh, to do her burlesque. I think she's coming through. Yeah. Uh, Glaminatrix tour. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So whenever she comes through, we used to just contact her press people about being in the magazine or being interviewed. And they've always been gracious. And, you know, we've done interviews over the phone and they'll send the images that we need. And they asked me to shoot her show. I think I've shot at least on two occasions. And so that's how I got the picture from shooting her show. The one where she's like in her champagne class. But I haven't shot her like in a studio type setting. It's usually she doesn't have time to do that. When just coming through a city to do a show is the response I've gotten. And then uh, I don't really go to California much. So yeah, I would still like to shoot her someday, like in a studio type setting for the magazine. But there's a lot of other things uh, on my plate. And <laughs> I'm sure I'm pretty low on her plate of things to do. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I was watching some sort of a documentary on her. And one of the things I thought was really interesting about her is I don't know about photo shoots, because I imagine when it comes to photo shoots, when you're dealing with lighting and, you know, all those technical details, probably makeup is very specific. But as far as her shows are concerned, she does her own makeup, which I thought was pretty crazy. That's like some serious attention to detail and your craft. Yeah, her shows are uh, amazing. And I think that third one I went to, I actually, I did not want to shoot. I actually just wanted to sit there and watch it. Uh-huh. That was one of, the, one of my first dates with my wife. And yeah, her show is amazing. And I'm sure the one coming up will be great. But she's done a lot for the pinup and burlesque and fetishing. I think most of the models, they all look up to her and performers. Like she's the queen mm-hmm. of the scene, yeah. definitely. Yeah. 
Definitely. Well, so tell me about Subspace Magazine and how does it differ from Cynical Magazine? And listeners at home, if you're interested in what we're talking about, Cynical Magazine, it is spelled S-I-N. Yes. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> Subspace is more focused on BDSM uh-huh. and more like latex, the more extreme type outfits, whereas Cynical, I guess most of the models are wearing like nylons and corsets. But the more extreme stuff is in subspace. And subspace is a term where I guess a submissive will kind of lose themselves in a session and kind of they'll feel out of body almost. People have different ways of explaining what happens to them. Oh, it's okay. one of the questions that we ask our subjects is, what does this term mean to you? I actually got jumped on by some, uh, I guess he was like a space nerd, or maybe that's not the right term, but he's like, you know, this is a space term. This has nothing to do with what you're doing. And he's like, you need to, you know, stop using this hashtag. I thought it was funny. <laughs> so subspace is a state of mind, basically? Yes, state of mind. Okay, gotcha. And uh, yeah, and that's an interest of mine. I've explored those type of sessions, you know, in my personal life. And again, that's one of the ways I met my wife, Brittany. She was a former professional dominatrix. So I, yeah, after my divorce in my mid-30s, I definitely explored a lot of the things we cover in subspace. So tell me about your two books, Editorial Photography and How to Create and Sell a Digital Magazine. I guess in the early stages of the magazine, I was just really studying entrepreneurs, business entrepreneurs. And one of the things I always suggested was that you should put out a book on things that you know, like in digital format. Because even though a lot of that knowledge is already online, people like it organized and compiled So I think I worked on the first book for over a year, how to create and sell a digital magazine. And I just put a lot of the things that I learned about design, setting up an email list, marketing, and gathering content, and getting advertisers. So I put what I knew into the book. And most people have bought the digital version and not the print version because it's so big. They get cost like 20 something dollars to print. And then the second book, Editorial Photography, it collects a lot of the shoots that I've done for the magazines and other magazines besides the ones that I publish. And it has my I guess thoughts on how I think things should be shot, which after a while you learn to pay attention to things such as the backdrop and the lighting. Like when I first started as a photographer, I really didn't focus so much on like how good the background looked. I think some of my first shoots were terrible. Like I had like saran wrap, you know, that's the wallpaper (laughs) backdrop. And I was trying to make it look icy and it just looked bad. Uh So after several years, you really learn to look for a good location. You learn how to light better. You learn about composition. And then as a magazine editor, you look at it from a whole new other level too, when you're looking at other people's sets. So I just try to combine all those thoughts into that. And so if I understood correctly, your foray into film production evolved from photography, like you'd always wanted to direct film, but you started off with photography? Yes. Okay. How did you learn the craft of photography? My father loaned me his old Canon, which is like a black and white camera, and I just started shooting some of my friends that I knew. I just, you know, hey, do you want to go to the beach and like take some pictures? And back then I was using film, not digital, because uh, I don't think digital cameras had really come around yet in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. They started to in the mid 2000s, I think, or 2003, I'm sorry. 
So I had to develop all the film that I shot and I would go to Walgreens and stuff and I would get some pretty crazy looks. <laughs> I remember after, those days. <laughs> yeah. After they developed it, they're like, I think one of my sets, the girl had like, she was rubbing pink cake all over her body and like it was a nude set. <laughs> so, and then after a while, I learned that you didn't just have to take everything that you shot because it, it gets expensive. You could pick out the ones that you want to keep. And I think I got them in trouble because I was starting to discard so many. So I did that for a few years and then I switched to digital. But I just kind of learned myself and from reading books on the you know, what makes a good image as far as composition and lighting. And it took a long time to, to learn good lighting. And then in my late 20s, I, uh, I met someone named David Javier, who is no longer with us. He's a really great photographer. and He taught me a lot of things. And he told me I needed to switch to off-camera flash photography, which is where all your lights are external and they're triggered, you know, when you hit oh, the shutter. Okay. Yeah. And it makes a big difference from continuous lighting where everything just stays consistent so i think that really helped my photography evolve but i went back to consistent lighting towards the end i think my last shoot last year was a uh, just consistent lighting is the houston camera exchange still around yes they are it's a great shop to yeah yeah i remember you know back when i was a teenager i had a friend that was into photography and he was always going on about his star filter oh yeah do you remember those yeah yeah there's yeah they got a lot of cool filters and that. what i love about that shop is you can find old camera lenses they're pretty cheap mm -hmm. like old uh, canon fd lenses and those will work on modern cameras with the adapters really so a uh, lens that might cost two thousand dollars for the camera that i have like i could go buy for like 50 bucks nice. and just put an adapter and it basically does the same thing so i've interviewed writers that will not write on, you know, a laptop. They use the old school mechanical typewriters. So are there photographers in the photography world that use the old school stuff? Yes, there's definitely people that prefer older cameras, like medium format. Yeah, there's definitely people that prefer older technology. And there's people that just love shooting with Polaroid cameras. Well, when it comes to filmmaking, what uh, what all aspects are you involved in? You obviously wrote and directed the Goetia Diaries, but did you also score and edit and all that good stuff? Yeah, I did a lot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I co-edited the film with my friend Jack Maline. He started to edit the project, but then he got busy with his normal job where he can be gone off land for months on end. So oh, I kind of okay. had to get it done. I had to step in and just start working on it. But no, there's basically no crew unless my wife was around to hold the boomstick. <laughs> I was doing it a lot myself, setting up the lights and holding the boomstick. Mm -hmm. And it could be a lot. One of the things that was mentioned was like, I need to give more direction and spend more time with the actors. But when I'm paying so much attention to the technical aspects, it was really hard to do that because I had so much on my mind. Like, I got to make sure this button is recording and then this thing's recording. And then this object is in the right spot from the last, you know, angle. And it's just a lot. I did have some people to help on some days. And for like editing, do you use the one I always see as Adobe Premiere? Yes. Yeah. That's what I use. Yeah. Okay. DaVinci yeah. Resolve is the other one that people use a lot. I think Final Cut okay. Pro too. And is that something you had to pick up or had you had experience with that? I had some experience from my 20s just making, you know, editing really bad music videos and short <laughs> films back then. Uh, uh, so I just kind of relearned how to use it. 
And then I would go to Jack with, you know, some uh, guidance on certain aspects. He came back at the end to help us finish it and do like the final color correction and fix something. But yeah, definitely on the next project, I, I'm going to try to get more help, you know, at least a sound recordist and just more people on set. And then hopefully Jack could edit the whole film and I could take a step back. And I, I did not score it, uh, by the way. Doug Mock, he did the music and... I hope he works on all my projects. We have that type of relationship because I know some directors, they work with the same score for each project. And I want to try and do that with him. (laughs) And I may not be using the proper terminology. When I say score, I'm intending to mean putting an already produced soundtrack onto the movie. Yeah. Is that? Yes. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Doug did the music and he did some of the audio sound design. So he did a little bit of. Okay making sure I had the right terminology and wasn't like actually talking about producing the score, like writing the music. (laughs) Yes. Well, what do you find to be the most enjoyable and least enjoyable aspect of film production, both in the realm of still and moving pictures? Let's see. There's definitely days when we're shooting that I feel like this is what I was meant to do. I really enjoy this, but there's, you know, when you have a lot of stuff to get done in a day, uh, it could be, uh, extremely exhausting or you're dealing with certain personalities and scheduling some of those things can get frustrating <laughs> just trying to get everyone lined up and then everyone has their needs so you gotta really gotta learn to work with people and sometimes i could have a short fuse with people if they don't agree with me or things aren't going my way so I, i'm trying to be a little bit more understanding and taking in other people's uh, input <laughs> and just instead of saying no like we got to do it this way so that's something you can definitely need to learn if you're making a film is just how to work with people. It's a collaboration for sure. As far as photography, same thing, just dealing with flaky people. That's mainly, you know, I love the actual shooting and then editing and, you know, the publishing of the images. Well, your basic evolution from photography into film mirrors that of Stanley Kubrick. Is he one of your influences? And if not, who are? Uh, yes, definitely. He's definitely in my, I don't know, top three favorite filmmakers. David Fincher is definitely in there. Ridley Scott. I've said this a few times in other interviews, but David Fincher's Seven really made an impact on me when I was 15. Because mm-hmm. it was just, you know, it was so dark and I'd never really seen movies like that that really like hit the audience hard. And I really loved the atmosphere and just everything, the sound design. He's made a lot of other great films since then that I, I think I appreciate more. One of the things that I love about him Every filmmaker has a, a ratio of how long their shots last. I think Stanley Kubrick's is almost like 13 seconds or 11 seconds before he makes another cut. Uh, you could definitely notice it in The Shining. And I really vividly remember that movie. Like, I feel like I could walk through that hotel in my head. But if you ask me to recount like a Michael Bay movie, like I don't remember a Transformer movie a uh, day after I've seen it because his shots are so fast. They're like, you know, I think less than a second. So I feel like that's really a big thing. Some people don't like slower paced movies, but I do. I think David Fincher's is like three to four seconds before another edit. So that's something I pay attention to and I love about him. And Ridley Scott, he's a little bit faster. I think he's like yeah, three seconds. But his films are really visually great. And he made Alien and Blade Runner and Gladiator and Black Hawk Down. One of the inspirations that I find in Ridley Scott is he started late in life, kind of like me. I think he had two films made by the age of 42, uh, which is my age right now. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to get moving. Yeah. So it really gives me hope that like, it's not too late because he's made like almost 30 movies. Mm-hmm. I think he's in his 80s now. God. So 
it's like, oh, maybe I was meant to start this late. <laughs> you just got to get some life experience. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely felt like I had to live a little bit of life first before mm-hmm. I had anything to talk about. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, those are the three main ones. Okay. Yeah. So let me rewind a little bit. You were talking about Kubrick's shots lasting an average of 13 seconds. I want to say it's 11 or 13. And that's from all his films. And that's that's on average is what you're saying? Yes. Because I'm like, I'm thinking of like Full Metal Jacket right now. That, and yeah. Well, some shots, they might last like a minute, you know, or like the one takes where they're, like, yeah. when they're following all those troops up towards the building. I, I think I know what yeah. you're, you're getting at, but... If, well, I'm thinking more. I'm thinking more in terms of when Arlie Ermy is like just bawling them out. You know, yeah. they're in the barracks lined up. I feel like I guess that was one really long shot. Like when he walked to somebody else, I guess it didn't really pan to a different spot. He just walked further into the shot. And definitely, like I'm sure in the scene where he gets killed, uh, Arlie Ermy. Yeah, Arlie, yeah, yeah. You know, it'll speed up in that scene, but the, the average is like, uh, yeah. But Fincher's movies, they have a lot quicker pace, which makes sense. You know, it's 2022 now. But what I love about his movies is the camera always seems to move with the characters. And after a while, it does something to your brain. Like if someone sits down on the couch, it's not just the camera's just sitting there recording it. The camera's moving down as they sit down or as they get up. And subconsciously, it's doing something to you. A lot of filmmakers, they get the timing, I think, off when they try to do that. But... I definitely pay attention to a lot of those things when I'm watching a a movie, which sucks sometimes. I can't just get lost. I'm like, how long are these cuts? You know, how are they moving the camera? (laughs) Yeah. What do you think about some of the wacky stuff that Gaspar Noé does? Do you ever? Oh, yeah. He's like, I just saw what was his latest? Oh, um, Lux Eterna shot in that split screen where sometimes it's the same scene just split in two. But most of the time it's two different scenes that you're seeing simultaneously or like two different removed areas. Yeah, I haven't seen that one yet. I definitely think he tries to push things. I've seen Enter the Void and Irreversible. And those are definitely, you know, movies that hit you over the head. I like that he tries to go for different things and experiments. Another person that's really great with split screen is Brian De Palma. I forgot to mention him. And, oh, one other filmmaker I love is Dario Argento, who does colored lighting, which is like something I'm trying to bring from my photography to film. I love colored backdrops. So I want to try and keep that consistent with my work. What about Denis Villeneuve? Oh, yeah. I love his work as well. I think he's right up there with Fincher. There's a lot of great films. Christopher Nolan's great. The director that made Drive and Only God Forgives. I love his work. Ruffin, he has a lot of colored lighting in his films. He made The Neon Demon, too. That one's good. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was watching a documentary on Kubrick, speaking of lighting, and I forget which movie it was, but the lighting was actually shot from outside the set going in through the set windows. Oh, was it maybe Barry Lyndon? Maybe, yeah. Yeah. What time period was that supposed to be in? Because I've never seen it. Uh, (laughs) I just remember people were wearing the wig. Yeah. (laughs) Not sure. I haven't seen that one in a while. I think you're talking about Barry Lyndon. But yeah, I know he uh, had lenses made that NASA would normally use. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, To to film the candle scene. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, I mean. Yeah. it, It was either lit from outside or from candlelight. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And he tried to set up every frame like it was like a painting and a lot mm-hmm. of, I really wish he had made his Napoleon film. 
That would have been a great one. He had worked on it for a long time, mm. but never got to make it. Really, Scott's making that. He's making a Napoleon film now. I think he's taking a lot of inspiration from the project that Kubrick never did. Well, from what I understand, you were working on a pretty small budget. So what was the most difficult financial aspect of producing the film, and how did you adapt and overcome it? Yes, our budget was under 5000 and most of that went to the equipment. We did a Kickstarter to raise those funds, and most of the people who acted in it just did it because they wanted to be part of a film. But having more money would definitely help because there's a lot of other costs that come up you don't think about, especially in post, you know, having to pay to get like a closed captioning file made or certain things you need to have ready before you could submit to a distributor. So just a lot of different costs. And then when you do a Kickstarter campaign, you have a lot of rewards that you promise people. It's like you got to factor in all those costs. It's like, you know, the cost to make a Blu-ray, a case or a, you know, uh, posters and things like that. But now that we have a good camera, we won't have to worry about that for like future projects. Like we could start to build up other type of gear that we would need. So the next fundraising that we do for the next movie I work on, those would probably go more towards like the actors and locations and other things that we need. Well, how long did the production of the film take and where did you acquire the cast? It took, I think, from the time we started writing the script to finally being done with shooting, I think it was 16 months, which is a long time. Some people say you should not spend that much time on a found footage film, like three to four months or something max. But I had to work with people's schedules and my schedule and shooting on the weekends. The cast is primarily my friends, the people I know or that I knew were into the cult, like Paul, who's actually, I've known him for 20 years, but like now we're starting to become closer again as friends. So I'm glad that that happened. But yeah, I think that's what you kind of need to do. Because I learned from people like reading about Christopher Nolan. I think he had to work with people that he knew, his friends, and shoot on weekends to make following his first film. Mm -hmm. And he shot that on weekends for over a year. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think the budget for that was like $6,000. So that was definitely a model for what we were trying to do. And also, I just hear stories where people like, they raise $100,000 or $150,000 and they put their movie out and it makes like a thousand bucks, you know? <laughs> so if we kept the budget pretty low, it wouldn't affect us that much if it didn't make a whole lot of money. So, and we didn't really care about the financial aspect. We just wanted to make a film, you know, something we could be proud of. Well, as much as you feel comfortable doing so, tell me about the life of Danny Stygian outside of film. It's hard to say outside because I feel like I'm always working on projects, which kind of upsets my wife sometimes, <laughs> that I don't take more breaks. That's kind of just how I am. When I'm not working on a project or on the magazine, I do do a lot of reading. I try to spend time you know, with my wife and on my daughter. I watch a lot of movies. You know, We work on our house projects, so kind of boring stuff. We don't really like to go to bars and clubs that much these days. We try to stay out of that scene mm-hmm. and just kind of focus on staying home and the projects that we have going on, so... Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, it's mainly that. And yeah, we watch a lot of movies, <laughs> okay. mainly horror movies. Well, out of all of your projects, what would you say your primary obsession or focus is? Definitely right now, it'd be filmmaking. I'll always do the magazines. I've lost interest in doing photo shoots. I may do a couple a year, but I think there was a year I did 100 shoots in one year. And it, yeah, <laughs> that won't happen again. <laughs> uh, I got so burnt out. But uh Filmmaking for sure. I want to try and do at least one project a year. 
and some friends my age recently like passed away. And every time someone passes away, it kind of gives me another motivation to just stop wasting time and like try to get stuff done. Well, you mentioned watching a lot of movies. Are you talking about at home or do you go out to the movies at all? Mainly at home, but there was a period recently where I was going to the movies a couple of times a week. There's a theater like down the street from me, okay. but I got kind of busy and yeah. <laughs> well, what do you think about what I would say is kind of the decline of the movie going experience? Because I mean, even now when they come out with a major motion picture, you can usually see it on a streaming service like HBO Go or the like. And of course, streaming services are convenient as well as they're making really good original content. You think people will ever actually lose interest in going to a theater to see a movie? No, I don't think they will. Streaming platforms have definitely changed the industry. So you, you can already see it. A lot of movies, it almost seems like we're only getting the big budget, you know, comic book movies more these days or franchises, which is true. Like a lot of the smaller movies that were getting financed a few years ago, they're not hitting the theaters anymore they're just going straight to streaming so i don't think it'll completely go away but the box office numbers have definitely affected things which means like actors probably won't get their 30 million dollars uh, movie anymore you know they're probably overpaying yeah. <laughs> but uh <laughs> but on the other side there's just so much content now on these streaming platforms like my wife were just talking about we don't have enough time in the day to watch all these shows and movies so we really have to be selective and it sucks I feel like one of the reasons why it's taking so long for our movie to show up is just so much content now, which also means all these platforms need content. One of the things, you know, people used to tell me before I started making the movie was like, it's going to be too hard to get it sold or whatever. But it's like, no, I think these platforms need content. They're looking for content. It's not as hard as you think. You just need to make the movie and then try and get it on one of these platforms. So I saw a post where you and your wife went to the Renaissance Festival and I am going to make a blasphemous admission. <laughs> In my entire 42 years, I have never once been to the Renaissance Festival. So what am I missing? What's the big deal? What's going on? You should definitely go. I think I went two years ago with my wife. She introduced me to it because it's not far from where we live. And she's been going since she was a kid. And I think people go because it's almost like a, the way she put it. It's like a mini vacation. You can get away, you know from the normal nine to five or day to day stuff and like kind of escape in this fantasy world a little bit where people are dressed up and, you know, you have all these shops and activities and, you know, you can go get yourself a turkey leg or apple cider beer, which is one of the things we love. And uh, just the shops, there's so many amazing shops. And uh, I think you should definitely check it out. We try to go a few times each season. So I think we're going to go again next month. Well, since your newest focus seems to be filmmaking, if you had any advice to aspiring filmmakers, what would that be? My advice is don't wait for someone. I think his name is Mark Duplass. He has a really great speech on YouTube, a talk he did, which is like, you don't wait for the cavalry to come. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to make stuff happen yourself, which I really believe. And even if you make a few films, like still don't wait for someone to come and just hand it to you. You really got to go out and just make it. And I recommend just trying to get whatever camera you can get and ask your friends to help you, you know, start with short films, just shoot them on the weekend, usually in just one day, you know, like a five to 10 minute short film. And once you've done enough of those, you know, try to graduate to a feature length film, try to write it yourself, you know, because no one's going to write you a script. Even now, it's like I can't 
expect someone to just hand me a script. You know, if I want to shoot something, I got to write it. Then people will usually help you try to flesh it out and polish it. And right from what your resources are. So if you know you have access to like a bar or a warehouse or some type of locations, write those into the script. Everyone has friends that are willing to help, especially if they know you're trying to make a movie. Or, you know, they could loan props, things like that. And yeah, I don't recommend trying to make a film with a big budget, you know, or trying to get like producers and try to cast professional actors because you really don't know what you're doing yet. I recommend working with your friends on your first project. And then uh, I'm still in the distribution stage, so I don't have all those answers yet. (laughs) But uh, one thing I learned from talking to other filmmakers is you have to be really careful with distributors. A lot of people have signed their films away, and then they don't receive any money or see any money for years, if not ever. So if you could distribute it yourself, you know, you should try and do that as much as possible, especially with physical media like Blu-rays, DVDs, posters, or anything that you could sell, I guess, related to your movie. You should keep the rights to all that type of stuff because you're probably not going to get like a huge deal on your first film. And I think it'll get easier because people are approaching me now about projects, not necessarily movie projects, but like short films or promos or things for their companies. So it's definitely helped that I have a film in my resume now. Outstanding. Well, Danny, it has been fascinating talking with you. Yeah, it's been a great talk. And I really appreciate you uh, having me on your podcast. Absolutely. As we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your viewers know about? I would just say to keep up with our social media platforms for the Goetia Diaries and Cynical Magazine. If you could go to cynicalmagazine.com or the goetiadiaries.com, keep up with our updates there. And hopefully we'll have a streaming date pretty soon for the Goetia Diaries. Well, listeners at home, all links will be in the description. And Danny, thank you again for joining me. Thank you very much. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.
empire.